there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. It's Cece here, and I wanted to tell you about an upcoming webinar of mine that'll happen on July 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. It's called Writing Relationships, Developing Character Connections in Your Story. And as you can probably guess, it's all about writing relationships. We'll cover so many things, including, for example, did you know that your protagonist should experience chemistry with every single relationship that appears on the page, not just with their love interest? And we'll discuss how relationship-driven elements can move the plot along, including upping tension, conflict, and stakes. We'll cover common challenges, common mistakes, tips and tricks to know if you're relationships are working on the page, and the role of various relationships according to genre, and so much more. Of course, we'll have time for a great Q&A session, and lots and lots of examples will be used to illustrate the techniques being explained. Writers of all categories and genres are invited to attend. If you cannot attend live on July 20th, but you wish to see the recording, please sign up in advance. If you're interested, the link is in my bio. Check out my Twitter, check out my Instagram, and you'll see the link there. I look forward to seeing you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Before we introduce you to today's guest, Carly, there was something you wanted to tell our listeners. 
Yes, I am very excited to tell everybody that I am going to be doing an event in person. And so I wanted to blast this to all of you guys because it is an audio event. So I am going to be at North Fig Bookshop, that's in Los Angeles, on July 19th at 7 p.m. with some of your favorite co-hosts and other people in the podcast world. So I have Brad Listy, who is the host of Other People podcast, Tracy Thomas, who you've heard on our podcast before, host of the Stacks podcast, and Jennifer Calorias, who is the host of Books Are My People podcast. And so we would love to see you guys there. It's at North Fig Bookshop, 7 p.m. July 19th. We're going to be talking about all of the things that you guys are interested in, the world of book and creative writing podcasts. The panel is going to discuss and debate the power of book podcasts to sell books, podcasts as book publicity tools, creating literary community through audio, what makes a good interviewer. I know you guys have a lot of opinions about that and how podcasts help writers with the craft of writing and obviously help readers learn about new books. So this is going to be a really fun in-person event where you get to hear us all speak live. So anybody in the Los Angeles area, please come see us and we can't wait to meet in person. Awesome, Carly. Thanks for that. All right. We have a special guest with us today. We have never had an author on the show who has promoted a collection of short stories. And this is especially why I wanted to have this guest on today, besides the fact that her writing is absolutely beautiful, breathtaking. It's just such an amazing collection. So our guest is the daughter of Filipino-American immigrants who first came to the United States in the mid-1950s, born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She's the eldest of six. By the time she was 12, she had moved to seven cities before her family settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Love you, Milwaukee. Shout out to Milwaukee. Woo! And to Boswell Books. Right. She is the author of two novels, two story collections, and a work of nonfiction, and is the editor of Screaming Monkeys, Critiques of Asian American Images. She draws from the stories she grew up on and the research from a Fulbright Senior Scholar Award, as well as numerous grants and fellowships from the University of Miami. She has been recognized as a Dayton Literary Peace Prize finalist and as Zelaznik Distinguished Visiting Writer at Cornell University and is the recipient of the Gustavus Myers Outstanding Book Award. The American Library Association named Angel de la Luna and the Fifth Glorious Mystery among recommended feminist literature for ages 0 to 18. She lives in Miami where she teaches creative writing. It's my pleasure to welcome M. Evelina Galang. Evelina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. Thank you for having me, Carly and CC. It's wonderful to be here. That is one hell of a bio. Let's just put it out there. It's extremely, extremely impressive. And for our listeners, the book, this short story collection that we're discussing today in between our critiques is When the Hibiscus Falls. It came out from Coffee House Press. It is just such an amazing collection. From the very first story, I was gripped. It gave me goosebumps. And before we dive into the critiques, Evelyn, I'd just like to say this is a collection of short stories, and yet it feels so much like the different protagonists in each of the short stories are in conversation with each other. It feels so connected. So can we just have a discussion about that for our listeners who are trying to put short story collections together, how this process unfolded for you? Sure, I can I can talk about that. Thank you so much for your kind words, first of all, Bianca. So When the Hibiscus Falls was written probably in the span of 10 years, 
And then sometimes, I think a couple of the stories were written a little bit earlier than that. And when they were initially written, they I did not have a book in mind. Really what was happening for me, I had some longer projects like Lola's House and, and Angel. And in between those projects, people were saying, can you write a short story for our anthology? Can you write a short story for here, for there? And so I wanted to because it's one of my favorite forms. It's my first form of writing. And I would justify walking away from my larger projects by saying, oh, I'm going to do what I call a satellite story, like the story Drowning is a character that never shows up in my book, One Tribe, but she's the little sister of somebody in that book. So first of all, I started to do those kinds of stories. And then I was just writing stories for fun. And then I realized I had, and for fun, like in relaxation, because I'm a nerd. And then I was like, wow, I have a lot of stories here. So I started to look at them. And um, one thing that I always talk about are obsessions. Like we as writers and artists and human beings, we have our obsessions and we're not always aware of what those obsessions are, which is, I think, for a writer, it's a good thing not to know from the jump, you know, what's your obsession. So looking at the stories, I reread them multiple times, worked on them too in, in that way. But I was reading for what are my obsessions and what are some of the themes that are going on in my stories? What am I concerned with? And when I started to see what those obsessions were, when I went back into, and you might call them themes too, right? So when I went back to revise and to look at the book, I wanted to, on a friend of mine's advice, she said, Evelina, what can you do to turn these stories into a book? Like, how can they read as one cohesive thing? And so it was these themes and obsessions that I started to suss out. And then I started to think in terms of arcs, like, for example, one of the themes are about ancestors and ancestry and the way ancestors are constantly with us and talking to us in my mind, in my imagination. And so I started out very in a very concrete way with the early stories. And then as the stories progressed, I started to open up and allow for the imagination to take over. So conversations between ancestors and then ancestors showing up and then eventually ancestors narrating stories, right? So that in some ways I was asking, I was inviting readers to enter this world they may not be used to and to start to trust the writer so that by the time it got to a couple of the crazier stories, when it came to those visions of ancestors, we all were together on that page and we were all willing to accept it. So I think look for your obsessions and start to think, how do I make these stories, not a collective, but a book? Yeah, and there was so much intergenerational play besides the ancestors. Like even it comes out straight out the gate with the first book, Strength is the Woman. That was just heartbreaking in terms of the differences between generations, etc. And that just leads to one more question I'd like to ask you before we're going to have Cece kick off our first query letter, is so many of these stories are anchored in historical moments in the US, like, for example, Hurricane Irma, and then the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump election. Can you talk a bit about how these events do more than just to serve as a backdrop to each of these stories? Because on the show, we say to our listeners, setting is so important. The era that you're choosing, it can't be a thumbsuck. It can't be some random thing. It needs to be informing so much of the story. And, and what you do in your stories is you do that so brilliantly. Thank you. For me and these stories and my characters, for the characters, they're reacting to what's going on in the world around them. Their, their actions, their choices, their heartaches are 
are in response to the world that they're living in. So for me, these moments, like the, the night of the election in 2016, was a time, a very scary time for many of us, right? We didn't know what was going to happen, and if it if the wrong thing happened, what was going to become of that? And especially for these two characters who are who are immigrants and children of immigrants, right? And so I feel like I agree with you and, and the things that you're telling your listeners and, and, and your audience that setting and point of view are so important. And point of view and that lens is oftentimes situated in the present moment of an era. So I always say to my students, if you tell the story of an unwanted pregnancy, the story changes from the 1950s to the 1990s when abortion was an option to even now where it's like it's kind of in the balance, right? So that that same tension between two characters becomes something different depending on when that story is happening. Excellent, excellent point. Okay, so we're going to we're going to be asking Evelina more questions about this amazing collection, but we're going to start now with our query. Cece, will you kick us off with that first query letter? Dear Cece and Carly, I'm excited to introduce you to my 127,000-word dystopian adult fiction novel, The Garden Rules. The story centers on an unsuspecting indentured surrogate who finds herself in the middle of a decades-long power struggle between a totalitarian government and a group of floundering rebels. Between a flawed protagonist, adult coming-of-age themes, and upmarket feel, I think it has a little something for both of you. 26-year-old Adrian is diligently serving her duty to help repopulate the planet nearly 40 years after a pandemic has left the human race on the verge of extinction. Born and raised in the remote towers of the GenCorp Global Repopulation Center, colloquially known as Eden, she has everything she could ever need, her best friend, her mentor, and a library full of books to help her prepare for the day when she'll enter the real world. But on the eve of her ninth year of surrogacy, Adrian is sought out by a GenCorp executive, sparking a chain of events that lead her to break the cardinal rule she didn't know existed. She falls in love. Adrian resigns herself to the despair of her punishment, her dreams, true love, and their child stripped away, until the unthinkable happens and she is stolen in the night by foreign insurgents. As she unwillingly enters the world beyond Eden, Adrian is forced to confront the harsh realities of her existence, question the true motives of people she once trusted, and navigate the complexities of a family she never knew she had. She ultimately embraces a life of rebellion, fueled by her grief and a sliver of hope in finding her child, and joins a scheme to destroy the system that took everything from her. It's not until plans are in motion and Adrian journeys back to Eden with her new companions that she learns she is just a pawn in a much larger game. To protect the remaining pieces of a future she dreamt of, Adrian must reconcile with her past, embrace her new life as a renegade, and once again escape the clutches of Gen Corp. The novel's speculative take on reproductive agency with themes of mystery, morality, and sisterhood will appeal to readers of Nietzsche Cadillac's When We Were Mothers and Sarah Flannery Murphy's Girl One. I am a West Coast transplant living in Washington, D.C. with a brief stint in London along the way. By day, I lead public health research initiatives for LGBTQ plus advocacy organization. And by night, I enjoy reading fantasy and sci-fi when I'm not working on writing projects. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jan T. Cobert. 
Thank you, Cece. Okay, so what was our word count there and what was your take on that? This one came in at 440 words, which is a little on the longer side, but not, not too bad because after all, this is science fiction, so I understand the need for using extra words. What I am concerned about is the length of the novel itself. 127,000 words is a lot. For sci-fi, there's a little bit of leeway. So what I would suggest is making sure that your comps are just as long, if not longer. And I don't think they are. I would look that up to make sure. I would also bring up the comps to the first paragraph because right now you have the word count and your title in the first paragraph. And since your word count's really long, I'm worried that potentially agents could be turned off by that. And so if you have the comps there too, showing that there are also successful long novels in the same space, that might help. In terms of the plot paragraph, I want to know why this cardinal rule is a secret, like why she didn't know she could fall in love. I'm pretty sure it's not a big deal. I'm pretty sure it's just phrasing, but it made me curious. When you write until the unthinkable happens and she is stolen in the night, if the unthinkable is her being stolen, you can just remove the unthinkable part because it's just extra words that you're using up. And in terms of the plot paragraph, like this is really well done. This is definitely like top 10% of query letters we see. I want to be honest about that. And so it's not like you have to change anything, but I am wondering if the plot points are framed in a way that are too high level and or generic. So she falls in love, is stolen in the night, embraces a life of rebellion, journeys back, reconciles with her past, escapes the clutches. And that's how it's being framed in that kind of language. So ideally you have very specific zooming in plot points that will make the reader specifically curious about the story in a way that sounds just less, less generic is what I'm saying. But again, maybe that's not possible because of the level of world building involved and because you need to understand so much about the world. So if it's not, don't stress too much about it. It's a very strong query letter. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? This is a prologue. And right away, there's a note that says, the protagonist is introduced in chapter one. I will get to my notes on that later. So what happens is Joe, not our protagonist, is thinking of a childhood memory as she is arriving at her sister's house. And it's her brother-in-law who answers the door, which she's expecting. And through dialogue, we learn that her sister was taken. And what's strange about this, because people have been, this, this has been happening. What's strange about this is that the neighbor, the neighbor, also a woman, was also taken. And she's never heard of two people being snatched before. And she knows it was GenCorp, and she knows the chances of seeing her sister again are very slim. Towards the very end, she looks out, she sees the GenCorp towers and has an idea that could potentially bring her sister back. We don't know what the idea is yet, because that's when the pages end. Okay, so do you think they did all the heavy lifting that we expect from opening pages? This is going to be such a tricky thing to critique because on the one hand, when it comes to world building, stories that involve lots of world building, this author did a fantastic job because usually, especially with debuts, I see paragraphs and paragraphs of the character walking through the world and thinking about the world and all this, all this beautiful writing potentially, but like, why are you giving me all these tension leaks? You know, like you have to seduce me. And this here, like the world building was tucked into dialogue immersed in scene so sophisticated so elevated so well done so this is absolutely fantastic from a world building perspective and you did a really good job so congratulations what i'm struggling with are two things one i don't think the prologue is the right place to start i i have to be honest and say that if you're thinking that this prologue is essential then of course you know your book better but i wouldn't keep it i like to 
dive into books and connect with the character right away, the protagonist right away. It is my understanding, based on the query letter, that this will be single point of view, told through Adrian's perspective. And if this is not the case, the query letter needs to be rewritten. So because of that, I'd highly recommend starting with Adrian's perspective. We need to connect with her. She's the hero. We don't get anything on Adrian at all in these pages. And my theory is that Sarah is Adrian's mother, and that's how Adrian will be born into Gen Corp headquarters, or else Adrian is the neighbor. I'm assuming that this current choice benefits the plot for a reason I can't understand yet since I haven't read your whole pages, and I don't know for sure who, who Sarah is. But the fusion between the reader and the protagonist's brain is something that needs to happen right away. It's essential, and so I would start with, with Adrian. I wouldn't start with this prologue. That being said, if you're going to start with the prologue, remove the parentheses. That's right under the prologue right now. That's kind of like a timestamp that says the protagonist is introduced in chapter one. Like I assume this is for agents, not for the average reader. And I, as an agent, like to go into a manuscript organically. I like to read as a reader first, and then I have, of course, put on my agent hat and offer notes. But that to me is really important. If you do decide to keep the prologue, I will give you one note. For four pages... Joe knew her sister was missing and was feeling no emotion. And I had all these notes for you, my typical notes. Where's the emotionality? Where's the interiority? Why is she not freaking out? Her sister was taken, was snatched in the middle of the night or maybe in the middle of the day. I don't remember now. And then we got to page four and there's a really smart line that you know, shows her releasing her emotions because she had, be she had been keeping it all in until then. And so I was like, oh, okay, it's intentional. But my fear is that people are going to read those first three or four pages and be like, nope, there's no interiority. I'm going to stop reading. So I would tuck in a sneaky line to indicate that she's trying to hold it all together right away, right from the beginning, so that we don't think that it's because she's like lacking emotions, right? Because that makes no sense. So those are my notes. I hope they're helpful. Thank you, Cece. I'd actually now like to ask Evelina something bouncing off of something you said. And for our listeners, again, a reminder, we're talking about when the hibiscus falls. And just an overview, 17 stories traverse borderlines, mythic and real, in the lives of Filipino and Filipino-American women and their ancestors. Right, so something Cece said now about how she likes to immediately connect with the characters straight away. And we've said to our listeners that the minute you've got more than one POV character in a novel, you're giving yourself so much extra work because instead of 80,000 words to connect with the character, suddenly you've now only got 40,000 words to connect with that particular character. And it is so much harder in short stories because you have got 17 short stories. You want your reader to connect with each of those characters very quickly. You don't have much time. And here's the thing that Evelina does so brilliantly is that it says Filipino and Filipino-American stories, but she uses the personal universal element so effectively in that even though I'm not Filipino, even though I have not had these experiences, I am immediately attached to her characters. So can you speak a bit about the challenges of that, Evelina, in terms of short story structure versus the novel structure? Well, thank you so much. Thank you for that. So the thing that I love about the short story is that these are character-driven stories, and you don't have a whole lot of time. And the question is always being asked of that particular protagonist, what is it that they want? What is it that they need? What is it that they're avoiding? And that's what we're reading to find out, right? So that tension, that question, and it can be subtle in the first line, should be introduced. 
So this idea of introducing your character, it's not just so much about building the world. It's about, boom, like what is going on for them? What are they trying to solve? And it's always about trying to solve that question, right? Making the choices. And so these things can be introduced immediately. And not so much that you want to announce it, but the the way they act and react in a moment because they're either not focused or because of this worry that they have or whatever becomes the reason for the story. And I've been talking about this at some of my readings that my niece, when she was nine, had an author come to her school and she described conflict because we're talking about conflict, right? She described that as a question that the story asks. And when the story's question is answered, the story is over. It can be as simple for writers as to put that conflict or that question down on a, on a post-it and stick it up to the computer and always ask, am I, is this what my moment is addressing or am I going off on a tangent? that has nothing to do with what their concerns are. Because a world can be so interesting that you get lost as a writer into that world and you forget that there's somebody here trying to solve a problem. Yeah, and like you said, you can introduce it in the first line. So in Strength is the Woman, the first line is, no one ever gets the story right. And that's so powerful because especially these kinds of stories are not often told by the people who've lived these experiences. Mm. We are hearing these stories told by so many other people. And so to get the story right, we need to hear it from these Filipino, Filipino-American women who have lived these experiences, and we get that straight out the gate in that story. We understand that. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite lines in the whole book, because it speaks to different, different, on different levels, it has different meanings, right? And, and that story, Strength is the Woman, is the creation myth of the Filipino-American, or the Filipino man and woman, and I've subverted it. I've turned it upside down. And you can figure that out later. But it is about like this idea that nobody gets the, the story right, like ever. <laughs> My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. 
built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Before we go to Carly's query, there's one other thing that I want to chat to you about because we get this question a lot and I've experienced this in my own writing. So my debut novel was based in South Africa, which is where I grew up and I included a whole bunch of different South African languages Um, There are 11 official languages in South Africa. And I was told by my North American publisher to put the foreign words in italics to cue to the reader that it was a foreign language. And, And I did that. And many years later, I'm going, okay, but now what we're doing is we're centering the North American reader as opposed to centering these characters and their experience. And what I loved about this whole collection is you use Filipino words. They are not in italics. It isn't that they are translated for the reader, et cetera. So, so what was your approach to that? And what is your advice to listeners who are trying to do the same thing? Right. Thank you. Uh, that is such an important thing to me, too. So there, uh, there's Tagalog, which is one of the Filipino languages. We have like 187 dialects in the Philippines, right? So there's Tagalog. There's Kapampangan, which is the language that my dad grew up speaking. And then there's even Spanish, right? And so my idea is always that when when the language comes up, it's a part of the authenticity for the character. This is what the character would say in this moment, and this is how they would say it. And it's so important for us to be able, I think, to read without interruption, without having to stop the disruption of the italic or the disruption of a, a definition, right? It's so important for the narrative to be that thing that John Gardner calls the vivid and continuous dream. So I write in context and really advise. I I teach at the University of Miami. We have a a whole bunch of other languages that are happening at our university. And we, in particular, write in English and infuse many of our stories and poems with different languages. And we talk about giving context clues. I think young readers, when they're learning how to read, they figure out a word through context clues. These are the ways that we we can write with non-English words and also how a character acts and reacts to what is being said. And I think that that becomes the important thing 
I mean, I want to say Coffeehouse Press was amazing because my first book came out in 1996 and we had Tagalog in there as well. I had Tagalog in there and they had, this is like such a long time ago, they initially italicized all the Tagalog. And then when the book was out and printed it before them, Alan Kornblum, the, the founder of Coffeehouse Press said, you know what, Evelina, we're going to stop doing this. He said this. We're going to stop italicizing because it's disrupting the flow of the narrative. So to those of you who are writing in more than one language, I want to say your stories are important and it's important for you to tell the stories from that authentic voice of that world that you're coming from and that you don't have to apologize for it. You don't have to explain it. You just let the story roll and readers will follow. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I may not have known what some of the words meant, but I was like, she is pissed off, man. And I would back the <laughs> hell away if I was you. And that's all we, we needed to know. And yeah, by italicizing it, it's making that word the other, when for that character, it is not the other. So I love how organically that's all been included there. All right. So I obviously have more questions for Evelina, which we'll get to shortly. Carly, can we dive into your query letter next? Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, like so many others, your podcast has been a lifeline for me as I stumble along this optimistic path to being published. I've enjoyed your courses and continue to meet monthly with your inaugural beta reader matchup, in addition to currently sharing critiques from two other Bianca groups. We're unanimous in our appreciation that you brought us together and how fresh eyes help our work. Also, seeing others' pages provide a sense of what agents encounter on a daily basis. There are so many great stories and talented writers, it's illuminating and humbling to know what we're up against. Let's dive in, and I hope the word count starts here! Exclamation mark. Redacted, 93,000 words, is commercial women's fiction that mines the humor found in women's relationships while exploring the theme of accepting moms do enough. It will appeal to readers who enjoyed Lori Gelman's Yoga Pant Nation, Lisa Rose's Welcome to the Neighborhood, and a novel Carly championed, Wendy Katzman and Tracy Dobmeyer's Girls with Bright Futures. Soph Kowalski is like the frayed rope in a game of tug of war, about to snap. In the fallout of being stretched to her limit between work and kids, Soph and her family relocate, and she's pumped for a fresh start. Soph wants to launch a career as a mom fluencer so she can stay home and finally be the mom her kids deserve. But for her plan to work, she has to pass as something she's never been a cool mom. Decked out in designer knockoffs, Soph targets her social media idol, living like Lauren McLean, to be her best mom pal. With Lauren's mentorship, Soph's blog blows up and her new life is falling into place, all while navigating a cleaning lady who randomly redecorates and a barista who insists on serving Soph's lattes to go. Still, even in this leafy suburban setting, something is off. Soph notices Lauren wields uncomfortable control in the neighborhood and yet she pushes her misgivings aside and keeps her eye on the prize of her new career. But when Lauren catches Soph in a lie, the fresh start skids to a stop. Soph has to proceed carefully, or her dream of a new career and better life for her kids will be dashed as they're coming true. I'm a TV producer who has shifted from the daunting hours of morning television to work on live specials. I live in Toronto with my husband and three sons' rooms full of the stuff they left behind when they moved out. I've recently adopted a middle-aged scruffy rescue dog named Kramer. He came for six weeks and hasn't left. One of my best life decisions yet. Please find the first five pages below. May I send you the full manuscript? Thank you for your time and consideration. Redacted. Thank you, Carly. Okay, so from the point at which she asked us to look at the word count, what was their word count? All right, this one clocked in at 361 words. So very reasonable amount here. All right, so let's get into the critique. 
So I feel like off the top, we're not kind of like, words aren't rolling off the tongue per se. I felt like I had to kind of think about what I was going to say aloud, like as I was reading this query letter, the line exploring the theme of accepting moms do enough. Like, I feel like it should be maybe like, learning to accept that moms do enough or so I don't know that to me that was like super clunky and I feel like we could do a little bit better there and now in terms of the plot paragraph here so in terms of relocation to me this is very significant like are we relocating within North America like to a different suburb across the city to somewhere really far away like relocation to me is a big defining factor here so I think that we could specify that a little bit in terms of language we're using words like she's pumped for this really sets the tone like it's going to be commercial fiction and that's perfectly fine. The only issue I'm kind of having is the level of like how we're treating the kind of momfluencer side of this. So the comp that she mentioned that I represented, Girls with Bright Futures, was very satirical. And so I'm kind of waiting for when this like satire of this life kind of kicks in and the kind of social commentary that we're going to get to. And so I was just hoping that it was going to be a bit more satirical. Like, so this line about wants to launch her career as a momfluencer so she can stay home and finally be the mom her kids deserve. I'm like, is that, is that going to set you up for success? Like being a momfluencer is really hard. You don't just like snap your fingers and get like a hundred thousand followers. Like it is extremely entrepreneurial, long hours, no boundaries, like do your kids consent to being in like on your momfluencer page? Like to me, there's just like a million things to unpack. We're just like, I don't think momfluencer is a throwaway term. And so I'm concerned we're not kind of thinking about this in a satirical way. And therefore, and if it's not satirical, then I don't think Girls with Bright Futures is the right comp here. So I'm trying to feel my way through that as I'm as I'm reading along here. The line about while well, navigating a cleaning lady who randomly redecorates and a barista who insists on serving Sophie's lattes to go. This is usually the place in a query letter where we list plot hurdles. And so I'm like, I'm not seeing like the, these things as hurdles to our plot necessarily. I would probably just strike those out because I wasn't really sure necessarily why, why those were there. And so, and now I want to talk about Lauren, this like, I don't know, antagonist kind of momfluencer person. So the fact that she is kind of mentoring her momfluencer career and she's somebody she looks up to, like the thing that I also have struggling with is the idea that like momfluencing exists on the internet, which is like global. And yet this is very specific in the terms of like, there's two like battling momfluencers in the neighborhood, very local. And so this is where I'm finding this disconnect between like, is this satirical? Are we kind of using the hyperlocal to as a microcosm for like what's happening on the internet? Like as like, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, where is the satire clicking in here? And so far for me, it's coming off pretty surface level again, which if that's what the book is, it is more just like commercial. And I'm trying to read too much into this. Like maybe I'm just, again, thinking this is a book that's different than what it is. And again, then I would just look at a different comp other than Girls with Bright Futures. So that would be my main feedback here. I, yeah, I was just really hoping we were going to go uh, like one step farther in terms of elevating the momfluencer conversation. Because, I mean, if you look up any statistics, um, like most influencers actually don't make very much money, right? It's like it's that top percentile that's like raking in all the bucks. So in terms of this person wanting to have a career doing this. I don't know. I, I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm just surprised by this character's motivations. And I want to figure out if it's the fact that she wants like 
a quick method to make money? And then why is she going for influencing as like a quick method to make money? So I just have a lot of questions. And this is one of those examples of like, I really wish this author was on the podcast with us so that we could also kind of like dig into the meat of this and, and the why behind why mom fluencing and, and why this hyper local situation. So yeah. Great, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So we start we start with a timestamp. So we have Wednesday just after spring break. Um, and somebody in my DMs asked me, because I've talked about the timestamp song before, and then somebody in my DMs was like, you haven't sang the timestamp song in a while. So I'm, I'm like, now I'm like, okay, I need to like actually build out the timestamp jingle into a proper jingle. So I will work on that for you guys. And, and yes, the, the timestamp jingle will live again. But this one is Wednesday just after spring break. So we start with our character, Sophie. She's in her office. She's trying to kind of multitask. So she has her laptop open and she's watching her son do something kind of like on stage via Zoom through school. And then her boss is kind of waiting for her in a meeting room. And she's like, I thought I had 30 minutes before the meeting, but she doesn't. And then the assistant's kind of pulling her into the meeting. So she's, we have this push and pull of, of the motherhood agenda versus the work agenda. And so she gets into the workspace where she's going to do this presentation that she's being pulled into. And she realizes that nobody's paying attention to her. So she kind of like skips through the presentation kind of in a, in a witty way, just to kind of get back to watching her son do the, do the presentation at school. So there's a bit of mirroring there. We find out that the boss Haley is actually somebody that she had hired, like our main character had hired at one point, but she has skipped hopped above her in her career because our character has had some maternity leaves and taken some parental leaves while everybody else at work doesn't have any children. So we find out that our main character is going to skip work for the afternoon because she wants to go to school and, um, and interact with her son's assembly that she was watching on Zoom. And we have a bit of kind of tension at school because she wants to be invited to something that the other moms are doing and she's not quite sure if she's going to be invited and we kind of our pages end before we know whether she is going to be invited. Okay so a fair amount of conflict there which is definitely something you want in opening pages. So what was your take on them? So as I was saying in my summary, like I really liked this right off the bat, we have the battle between family and work, right? Like right away, we're establishing this tension. And in terms of this kind of like work environment, I feel like some of the instances of interaction felt a little bit like low hanging fruit. Like we have our main character commenting on somebody's like eyelash extensions. And I'm like, that interaction just told me like, maybe our character doesn't know too much about the beauty industry. So I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what the author is trying to tell me by planting these kind of seeds of interaction in the hierarchy um, and kind of the relationships between everybody in the office. It becomes very clear that like, she doesn't like her job at all. So then there's the whole like, why does she need this job? Like, why is this a trade off she's willing to make like trying to sit in on these meetings while she's missing something at home that she wants to to be at. And this is like just a timeless tale of like pretty much every working parent, you know, from, you know, eternity, right? And some parents really, you know, want to be working parents and some parents like do feel really torn. So I think this is very relatable. My only concern is like, yeah, again, what are we kind of adding to this conversation? Is it is it going to end up being satirical or, or where is the kind of social commentary going to be coming in? That's the type of stuff that I'm that I'm waiting for. Um, there is a swear word in here and I, I always like to remind people like I'm all for swear words like you can use the F word however much you want I don't care personally but especially in women's fiction readers can turn on you pretty fast so I just want to say if you're going to use the F word just 
really, you got to want to use the F word, right? And you're going to have to defend your use of the F word, especially in your first five pages. So just a reminder to everybody, use your swear words for when it really counts, right? And, and you want to stand behind those swear words, but all the power to you always. Thank you, Carly, as an author with a very potty mouth and whose DMs are constantly full of people yelling at me because of it. I can, can confirm Carly. that. Right, before we go to Evelina. Carly, I want you to come uh, up with a swear word song. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's okay. more my jam, people. Even better. That's what <laughs> I actually wanted you to say. <laughs> now you have to sing, Bianca. <laughs> Damn it. Sorry, I'm busy that day. Um, right. Okay. So <laughs> before we get to Evelina's critique that we're going to have a look at something. So the last query was from somebody who said that they were a TV producer. Now, Evelina, when I researched you, I saw that you worked in film as a script and continuity supervisor for quite a while. How does this inform your writing in terms of attention to detail? So scripting continuity is that person that has to hear everything and it, we write the Bible of what's going down in the production. Everything from the actual takes that with the dialogue and the script, but also the lights and the filters that, that go on with the camera. When I started my work in television when I was in college, I let a swear word go out into the into broadcasting world. I was doing this movie review thing and I let, and we had a, a clip and I let, I just, it, there it went. And my, my boss said, I don't know what you have to do, but your attention to detail sucks. Fix it. So interestingly enough, there I was um, in production and I, I moved into different areas, but settled on um, script and continuity. And there you have to really pay attention to detail. And I feel like, Bianca, you can talk to me about it, but I feel like that attention to detail has helped me to bring about specific detail in the writing. And oftentimes I've been told it's filmic, that the work is filmic. You can see it, you can hear it, you can. it's very sensory because of the, these details. And I feel like I'm a really good eavesdropper too. I like to kind of walk by and pretend like I can't hear or see what's going on, but I'm taking it all in as just as someone who's nosy, but also as a writer who may one day want to recreate a moment or, or whatever. So uh, I feel like that experience where I once sucked at details has developed in my own work and then really has fed my writing. Yeah. And people get so worked up about that. What is the follow on to Sex in the City? Is it and just like that? This week, someone went ballistic on social media because there was a reference to someone's, I think it was Charlotte's husband, Harry, says something about his mother dying 10 years ago and the super fans lost their minds and quoted yeah. from the original show saying it was not 10 years ago, it was this long ago and they should know better. And yeah, people really get worked yeah, up. Yeah, somebody about wasn't that. doing their job. Yeah, they do, they do. Or even just the, the, the part, what side your part is on from one take to the next, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something crazy. Really pay attention to that. Okay, so before we go to Evelina's critique, I also just want to comment on the amazing line level writing in this collection. We're always saying on the podcast that sentences are the building blocks of a novel. If you're just focusing on plot and characterization and you're not paying attention at the line level, the writing is, is not going to work. And I just want to read one line here, well, one paragraph. 
Irma, now we're talking about the hurricane, Irma left as suddenly as she came. She took with her the winds, the banging, the night. She took with her electricity, air conditioning, overhead lights, access to the stove and microwave. Heat seeped into the tiny house, sneaking in through the vents, rising up from the floorboards. It warmed the darkness like the hot breath of a sleeping lover. So just incredible, incredible line level writing there. All right, Evelina, will you read us your query letter? Before I begin, I just want to say it's been impressive listening to Cece and Carly give their responses as agents and people looking for work that they want to work with. I want to just preface that my response is that of a a writer and an academic. So it might be a little bit different, but at the same time, similar, right? So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Here's the letter. Dear Ms. Waters, given your interest in women's fiction, I hope you'll enjoy my novel, Where We Find Ourselves. Complete at 89,000 words, Where We Find Ourselves features the fast-paced domestic tension and complex female relationships of Leanne Miorti's work and the trials and pressures of modern motherhood as portrayed in Kathleen West's Are We There Yet? When Fabiola agrees to be a surrogate for her best friend, Liz, she tells herself it's because she wants to help her friend and not because she still has feelings for Liz's husband, Peter the man she once considered her soulmate. Fabiola's own marriage is struggling under the weight of three children and two entrepreneurial jobs. Fabiola's home organization business is successful. Her husband's startup, not so much. Then, an impulsive sexual encounter with Peter leaves Fabiola wondering whose baby she is carrying, Liz's or her own. As the surrogacy progresses, Liz begins to act strangely, straining the friendship and making Fabiola wonder whether a baby is really what her friend wants. Fabiola's seemingly perfect life begins to further fray as her long-absent mother makes a sudden reappearance in her life, causing Fabiola to question what it truly means to be a good mother. As Fabiola wrestles with whether to tell Liz about the affair and its possible impact on the surrogacy, her world comes crashing down. She must decide between being the model wife, mother, and friend she's always been, or living the life she wants. I am based in both Atlanta and Toronto, where I write about parenting, current events, and other topics for outlets like the Huff Post, Scary Mommy, and The Every Mom. I am a member of and a volunteer for the Women's Fiction Writers Association and am the mother of two young boys. Where We Find Ourselves is my second novel and explores the definition of what motherhood can and should be, how the choice to become a mother or not shapes our identity and the tension that can exist between chosen and biological families. Thank you for taking the time to consider representing my work. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Evelina. Right, so... For our listeners, we have listened to your feedback and you have requested that Carly and Cece do the actual query critiques for the sake of consistency and that our guest authors critique the pages. So we are going to start that today and then we'll see if the guest author would like to weigh in after that. Carly, would you like to kick us off with that? Alrighty, so this one, I believe we are at 357 words for this one. So just off the top, the titles weren't capitalized. So that's one thing that I always I always point out. There's a really strong premise here. I think this is this is really interesting. 
we have the power struggles in the marriage between, you know, her business being more successful than his. I, my notes in the margin are like very dramatic, interesting. Like, I think there's a lot, there's a lot that's really interesting here. A little bit of a coincidence potentially coming in when the long absent mother shows up. I'm like, you know, is that coincidence? Obviously it adds to a bit of tension, but could be potentially coincidental. I would cut the line that says she must decide between being the model wife, mother, and the friend she's always been or living the life she wants. To me, it's like, that's obvious through the conflict that you've created. So I would just strike through that. But uh, but yeah, I think this is really interesting. I mean, in terms of my personal taste, this would normally be something I would kind of go for. It's a little bit similar to something that I represent right now. So I probably wouldn't request the pages, but I think this is a really, this is a really good query. Thank you, Carly. Cece, your thoughts? Again, echoing Carly's comments because this query letter is really strong and it's doing a really good job of showing how much tension is built into the story setup, which means that the author has laid the foundation so that the plot points can can ensure that that tension escalates even more, right? So that's that's really excellent. I wondered if we could know what the world comes crashing down reference was to like, we've seen that in query letters so much, her world comes crashing down, her world comes crashing down and it can read a little generic. So I'm just wondering, can we specify that a little bit? If it's a spoiler, I just mean like the neighborhood, you know, like the neighborhood that we're talking about just so it's not like so many others. And then I also wanted to know, you said where we find ourselves is my second novel. Do you mean the second that you've written? Did you publish your first novel? So that's something that you might want to share as well. The first paragraph mentions complex female relationships of Leon Moriarty. Like I am a huge, huge, huge Leon fan. I have read, reread all of her novels, all of them. Anything she writes, I will read, literally anything. I can't think of a single one, maybe, maybe one of the really old ones, but even then I don't think so, where it's single point of view. And this query letter, I believe, is promising a single point of view since everything is so set in Fabiola's point of view. So I am wondering whether are we still going to get those complex relationships in the Leon style if it is single POV. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting making it dual POV, but I am wondering whether this is the best comp because a huge, huge part of what makes Leon's mastery with relationships so successful is being able to show the various perspectives on the same thing. So that's just something to think about as well. Thank you, Cece. All right, Evelina, did you have anything you wanted to add to that before we discuss the pages? No, I, I think that was really interesting. I mean, I too thought that the premise was very interesting. I, I have to say I was getting a little bit, like when I first read it, I was a little confused when she talked about like the after the affair, was she carrying her baby or Liz's baby? Because I sort of, you know, as I was reading, I was like, wait, I had to go back and I had to like think about it. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and then, and I realized, oh, it's because of the affair, right? So uh, maybe a, a little clarity around that I might've suggested. And also I found in response to what they're saying about some of the language here, that the general language that either, like I agreed I, in my own notes, I, I suggested certain cuts so that it would be a little bit more powerful. Sometimes when you take out these general crashing down and that kind of stuff, you take that out and what's left is a more powerful response or, or sentence of the work. So I think that in general, that's sort of like where my, my notes were coming in. Amazing. Thank you. And then for our Kofi supporters, you will have access to Evelina's notes and Carly and Cece's notes. So look out for those for the Kofi supporters. All right. In terms of the actual pages, can you give us an overview of what happens in them and then your take on them? Okay. What happens is the story opens with three women sitting at a table 
and they are going through a pile of applications for surrogacy. Liz is looking for a surrogate mom for her baby. And so the entire scene really kind of focuses on these three women. One of them is Liz, the one who's having, who would be hiring the woman. The other is another woman named Alice. There's Liz and there's Fabiola. And basically what they're doing is they are going through these piles and looking for the correct woman to carry this baby. In this opening scene, we find out that Alice, she's the first person that um, is introduced, the first character is introduced. She's kind of like a frumpy young woman, which I thought, you know, she did a good job of trying to define her character through like specific details, what she wears, how she was like, her body was acting. And then there's Liz. And then, like I said, Fabiola is the last person who gets introduced to the readers in this opening scene. So for me, and they're going through it. And you also find out that Fabiola's having some issues because she can't join with everyone when they're doing social things because of money issues and her own children. And so some of these initial seeds are being planted in this opening. The other thing that happens here is that we find out that Alice, I mean, most of the time on the page is spent kind of developing Alice's character and her storyline that she that she is uh, practical and that she doesn't like Korean food, but she's Korean. And there's this whole conversation that happens around that, which I have to say, as an Asian American woman who has like run into people who say you speak very good English and that kind of thing, that conversation went on a little too long and was a little too pointed and, and made me think like, what what's actually being said here? And also it took all the interest and the focus away from the story that was being pitched to us in that query letter. The story that we read about in that query letter is about this moment where Fabiola is the one who is pregnant, who has this dilemma. She's like involved with her very best friend, and yet she's involved with her best friend's husband, who is, an I I couldn't tell if it was an ex-lover or if it was someone that she had this attraction to, right? So for me as a writer, I was thinking this is all very important important information for the writer that this backstory that she presents is something that she needs to know because it helps to inform the choices the character makes but my suggestion for the writer would be to start in what we call en media res in the middle of of the action like what if rather than giving us this because i imagine it's going to take a very long time then to get her to be the surrogate to actually get pregnant, to have this, you know, and when's the affair going to happen? And in the meantime, you're going to be losing readers, I feel, right? So what if we start and she's already pregnant and she's, and this is where her dilemma begins. Is this baby a baby that I've ha- I'm having because I had an affair or is it because I've been implanted with this egg? And this question of motherhood, I also want to question like uh, Fabiola's own character like uh, because right now it's we don't have any indication of like how does she feel about these different kinds of conflicts that she's creating for other people so I think it's a super interesting um, super interesting premise and I would love to suggest that the author focus on Fabiola and kind of get us going there Awesome. Thank you so much, Evelina. We really, really appreciate that amazing feedback. And we appreciate you coming onto the show. For our listeners, get When the Hibiscus Falls. 
It's just a masterclass in line level writing in getting readers attached to characters very, very quickly. And yeah, just, just a wonderful, wonderful collection. So we wish you much success with that. And we hope to have you back for the next one. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.